0: I've got friends who have professional podcast studios. Yeah. Um, which I don't know. At some point, maybe I'll think about uh, renting out one um, so we can get a get a decent deal. Because we literally know that the Indianapolis person who does the uh, the professional tech podcast around the area. Yeah. But I figure anybody listening to this show is listening for the content and is not
1: you know. And it's your show sounds great. Audio. You're like I love your show and I think it sounds awesome. So. I, thank you. Um, I know that
0: audiophiles probably have a bone to pick with me, but they're not listening to the show. This isn't. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's people like uh, me. I mean, I'm listening to the show. Like, as you said, it's all the content and it's wonderful and it sounds great. Um, I love it. Uh, there's, wait, where are you guys out of? Where do you live? Uh, Indianapolis. I was going to say, because if you lived in the Boston area, uh, that's where I'm, we lived and- my son for a period of time worked for, um, BUR and they have a, a podcast garage that you can rent out. Like, it's like a space that's for the public. Oh, nice. Which it's kind of a cool thing. I mean, it's just a different type of, um, you know, it has a lot of, it's for the community, which I thought was like kind of cool that they do that. But, um.
0: We've got a studio. It's just then the pandemic hit and I didn't really want to go places where other
1: people were. <laughs> right. I mean, and you can do It's the perfect thing that you can do in your space. Mm-hmm. I, mean, the, I mean, I mean, I think I mean, I'm not a producer, but I feel like it's the type of job. It's the type of um, work that that lends itself really well to doing in your home.
0: It is. And it's, uh, there's not an upside to the pandemic. I, I, I would prefer it not be a thing. Yeah. Uh, I would love to be back at in-person events, seeing yeah. authors and shaking hands and things. But because those in-person events have been hard to come by these past couple of years, um, Ali Schwartz is here. My, my, my guest list is.
1: <laughs> well, it's so nice. I mean, it is that your your podcast is a wonderful way for people to come together and meet. Because as you said, in the world where all the conferences and all the events are not happening in person, the, the sense of community is that much more important and the opportunity is that much more limited. So podcasts like yours allow those things to come together, which is really nice.
0: Hopefully, if all the fingers crossed. We're heading out of this thing at some point, or heading into some new phase where it's just every every year we'll get vaccinated again, and yeah. just we'll have to deal with it. So yeah. hopefully, that we'll be getting back to some semblance of what things were before.
1: Yeah, I hope it's more like the flu and less like whatever this has been. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Although I've uh, acquired some habits, I'm sure you have as well, that are going to be hard for hard. I'm going to be hard pressed to give up. Like what? Slippers. <laughs> slippers. Uh, comfortable pants. Yes. <laughs> Mrs. Kent has declared that yoga pants are her new outfit for life, and that's just it.
1: <laughs> you know, i I. I think that um, that is a very familiar and embraced position. <laughs> I think no. I think people are not going back.
0: No, um, like uh, for office stuff, like I know her office is talking that they might start doing some days in, in person again. Uh, but every time they talk about it, it seems like there's a new variant that comes along. That, All right, right. well, put that, we'll kick that plan down the road a little bit. But yep. sooner or later, they will do that. But I don't think it's going to be five days a week. It's going to be a couple of days a week.
1: I think hybrid is what is going to ultimately be... Um, I think ultimately that's what's going to, that's going to be the new, the new model. I think people working from home and in in an office and having flexibility and being able to be remote and and recognizing and employers recognizing that they can be, uh, people can be effective remotely and, and happier employees are more productive. So I think, you know, it'll be that blend, I hope.
0: Oh, fingers crossed. I mean, every time I think about plan, uh, anticipating the future, I remember what my predictions were in 2019.
1: So <laughs> we'll, we'll see what we'll see. I know, right? <laughs> I mean, nobody could have. I mean, I thought Dear Student was going to come out in 2022. And this was all going to be a distant, you know, memory. And it's still knocking on our door. So yes, fingers crossed. We're at the beginning of the end of
0: the pandemic aspect of it. I so. I you, the uh, pandemic is so much on everybody's mind it becomes a part of the conversation. Anyway, you wanna call this the start of the show? Uh, hi there, esteemed audience. <laughs> <laughs> or
1: we could go on all day, yes, kick <laughs> it off.
0: So dear students, supposed to come out uh, last year, When when did you find out it was gonna be delayed?
1: No, it wasn't delayed. It was always coming out February
0: 15th, 2022. Okay. So that,
1: that, so, that was a plan. Yes. So it I'm very fact, happy.
0: Promote it. Are you able to do in-person events at all?
1: I guess time will tell. And right now time is, every day is a little bit different as you know, right? Sometimes, uh, Right, as for now, I have an in-person launch at Wellesley Books on Super Bowl Sunday. And we'll see if that stays in person, if it's safe, and that seems like a good thing to do, then we will do it. And if the pandemic feels like it is knocking on our door and it's not a safe thing to do, we'll pivot. I think that's one thing we've all learned this year is how to pivot. So I have a mix of events that are in-person and, um, and virtual. And if I need to move them all to virtual initially, then that's what we'll do. I mean, honestly, whatever is best for the community and keeps everybody safe. And because as we've learned, we can connect virtually. There are lots of ways to connect with readers.
0: I tell you, if I were in the Boston area, I would absolutely come to your book launch. And I, I, that's one thing I'm not—I'm uh, not going back to is pretending to care about the Super Bowl. I've never—I <laughs> have in the past, almost like a serial killer, acted like yes, sports. I like those too, but I'm done with the pretenses. Nope, I don't care.
1: I—I <laughs> I mean, I'm a big—I am a sports fan. I'm a Pats fan. They're not in the Super Bowl, so—and even if they were, my launch is at two o'clock. Super Bowl doesn't kick off until six. It doesn't even mean six, as we know. So there's plenty of time to love both books and sports.
0: So you'll have time to to rush home and, and make the nachos and be all ready to go.
1: Exactly. I got, you know, I got my chili recipe ready, wings, we're good.
0: I predict I will spend this Super Bowl the way I've spent the last few Super Bowls with a book.
1: (laughs) You know what? I think that's a perfect way to spend it. Maybe Dear Student. (laughs) May I suggest?
0: (laughs) Dear Student, uh, available now, esteemed audience. So it occurs to me uh, that the esteemed audience hasn't been reading about you, listening to other interviews with you, getting to know, uh, doing the, the research ahead of time. So they don't know maybe necessarily who who you are and I never do uh, I never do anybody else's biography and I never talk about anybody else's book so I'll just make a mess of both. Why, why would you wanna sit through that? Uh, so what does what does esteemed audience need to know about, uh, tell us about yourself.
1: Okay. Um, first of all, thank you for having me on your show. Um, it is an honor and a privilege. So I greatly appreciate this opportunity to connect. I'm Ellie I'm Swartz. I'm the author of Finding Perfect and Smart Cookie Dear Student and Give and Take, and I've Hidden Truths coming out in 2023. A uh, little bit about me, um, people who know me, it's always family first for me. I'm all about family. So uh, married, um, it'll be 32 years this year to my husband, James. I have two grown sons who are my whole heart. Uh, one is married and lives in Vermont. The other lives with his girlfriend in LA. Um, um, I just family is everything to me and I'm so grateful to them that they have believed in me and championed this career because um, one of the things when I start a school visit is I always ask them how long they think it took for me to get my yes and you know I say do you think it took one year or two years or three years or five years what do they think and, um, and then I have them do a drum roll and give them the answer. And the answer is it took me 15 years to get my yes. And the kids are like, Oh my gosh, (laughs) which is exactly how I felt for 15 years. So for me, um, that really long winding path to yes was championed by my family and friends and their belief in me that I could get to this point. So. When my books come out, it's just it—it it still blows me away, and it just fills my heart with joy. Um, I'm during those years. I mean, I'm a lawyer. I um, went to Georgetown. That's where I met my husband. He was in line behind me at registration on the first day. Um, and I was a lawyer. I practiced law for a period of time. I wrote law books with my father-in-law and articles with him and my husband for a long time. I taught legal research and writing at law school. I started a business, a college prep business called the essay advisor. I did that for many years. Um, basically, and I was doing, I was writing while I was doing all of this and raising my family. So all the things I love have the one thing in common, which is story. Whether it's books or college applications, where you're helping students and kids find their voice, finding that little Sliver of a moment that shares their heart and their story, um, or whether it's the law, it's real people's lives and the stories and how their stories and how the law has impacted them. So it's kind of a through line, um, just looks a little different with each job I've done, but I feel like it's, it's the thing that links them together. So that's a bit about me.
0: I love the idea that if you're telling that to, a group of students, 15 years, well, that's going to be older than some of them have, have are. That, that's our whole life. <laughs> that you're yeah. talking
1: about. It is, you know, it's funny because I do say to them, you know, you guys, right, your entire life, longer, because a lot of times I'm in an elementary school with like fourth or fifth graders, right, Their enti- their entire lives I've been working towards something and had yet to achieve it. And one of the things I tell them, because a student raised his hand. I, I mean, I love visiting schools. I love, love, love talking to kids. They're so honest and a student raised his hands and he's like, you know, Ellie, it's great that you persevered and you worked really hard, but why? you know, it was perfect. And I really made me think, and I'm, I said, it's a great question because rejection at my age, it's not like I've gotten great at it. It's not like I love it. Nobody loves to be told their work isn't good enough. They're not good enough. It's just like the kids that I'm with, right? Not making the team, not being invited to the party. I mean, you don't get great at, at rejection. So I had to think about why I, kept coming back. And I realized that I love writing more than I hate rejection. And I realized that the rejection doesn't define me the way I hope it doesn't define the kids that I meet with. Like you you don't ever give rejection that kind of power over you. It doesn't define your worth. You, I was a writer because I wrote, not because somebody said I was good enough. And that was a lesson that I think you just, I hope kids take with them. And I've taken with me over the years that you are not, you know, your rejection doesn't define you and never give that power to somebody else or something else to define who you are. And then just do the thing you love and just keep doing it. I truly believe that that's where your happy place is. So for me, it it took a long time, a lot of candy, And um, a lot of hugs from the people I love.
0: If I could go back to you, and at some point I want to talk about the legendary version that involves bazooka gum, I believe. Oh my God, yes. 15 years ago, and I tell you that, hey, it's going to take 15 years to get this done. Are you still on board, do you think?
1: It would have been easier to know it would have taken 15 years but I would have gotten there. See, it was the not knowing Like if somebody had said, you need to work your bum off for 15 years, be the best writer you can be, the best version of yourself, but then you're gonna hit the ground running. I I mean, I wouldn't have been happy about the 15 years, but at least I would have known, it would have been a certainty. It would have been something I could, a framework I could have worked within. The hardest part for me was knowing i was working my bum off knowing i was trying to become the best writer i could be and not knowing if that was going to be enough if i was ever going to get my yes that uncertainty was what crept in and you know as i share in school visits i mean just cuz i got to my yes and i pushed through those and persevered for 15 years didn't doesn't mean i didn't have moments of self-doubt, moments of, can I get there? Am I good enough? Will it happen? Of course I did. I mean, that's, I think that's human nature, right? You know, doubt creeps in and you start to say to yourself, are they right? Like, can I not get there? And it was, it was at a school visit yesterday or a virtual visit yesterday. And a student said to me, well, like, what kept you going? Like, why? Like, why did you? Like, what made you not stop when you got all these rejections? Because there was hundreds of rejections. I mean, it wasn't just a few sprinkled in over years. And I said, it. You know, I would turn to my husband and my kids, and I would say, "Do you?" <laughs> sometimes while crying, "Do you think this is actually going to happen?" And they would say, "Yes," just like that, no hesitation. I would say, like, why? Like, statistically, all the evidence would suggest it's not happening. (laughs) So why? Why do you think it's going to happen? And they said, I believe in you. And that got me over the finish line. Like, those three words. Like, that was it. And, you know, sharing with kids. Like, that's a gift you can give to somebody else, letting them know you believe in them. So that, I don't know, I think if I would have known it would have happened in 12 years, it would have been easier than not knowing it would ever happen.
0: So tell us the, the legendary story of the bazooka gum.
1: Oh my gosh. So I'm a, I'm a candy gum person. And so uh, years ago, we used to, when our kids were younger, I used to get those big buckets like at um, Costco of bazooka gum. they come in like a big plastic bucket. And um, I loved bazooka gum. And I, during one of these um, 15 years, I got a piece of gum. And I'm wondering if I have it here. I recently moved here. So I I don't know where everything is yet. But I, and it said, you will be (laughs) my fortune, which is usually like a broken clock is right twice a day. I mean, the fortunes are not you know, the early bird gets the worm. It's usually, they've usually been like that. And I got a fortune in my bazooka gum that said, you will become outstanding in literature. And I was like, what, what is this? This is a sign, this has to be a sign of good things, that good things are coming. And I saved it. And I just, I never gotten another fortune, but with Bazooka Joe like that. I've never seen another fortune like that. Um, I took it as a sign, as a little sliver of hope. And I have it with me.
0: Do you keep it uh, framed like Scrooge McDuck's first Yeah, I have
1: it. um, As I said, I recently moved. I I would go through my drawers, but I think that would probably take a a minute. But we, um, yeah, I have it. It's on When I um, got my first contract, um, it was framed with, my contract, the, the piece of the, the, um, the, uh, fortune.
0: So for 15 years, I'm assuming you're writing, you're sending things out. What does that look like? Are you writing steadily and serious the, the whole time? Are you taking breaks? What does it, what, what are the big milestones that get you to year 15? Here we go.
1: So yes, I was writing steadily. Um, so (laughs) finding perfect was the first book. It was the book I got my yes, but Rob, that was the fifth book I wrote. There were four other books in those 15 years that I was steadily working on. I would just write. And when one got rejected, I mean, I would revise it, but then I would just start another one. I just kept moving forward. There was a point, um, I shared this story yesterday. I (laughs) There was a point in time, I don't know what year, maybe year 10 or something around that time, that I decided to take all my rejections and read them. Now, I really don't advise it. It was very difficult. You're just mad at yourself. It it required a significant amount of candy to get through that, (laughs) Um, but I wanted You know, I'm a lawyer by nature, right? So I'm analytical. I wanted to see if there was a through line. What was I doing? Like, I know I can't control the business and what other people like and their taste, but I can control, I wanted to do as much as I could that was in my control. I wanted to be the best writer I could be. And I wanted to, I'm not a person who looks at rejection like, oh, they just don't get it. Like it's on me to be a better writer. It, that's on me. So how can I improve my craft? So I took all the letters and this is going back a very long time. So, you know, these were like actual letters that came in the mail. You know, like, you know, you send a manuscript in the mail, not via email and you get a letter back. And so I had my stack of letters, my bowl of candy, and I went through them and I realized that there was a through line. That people, there was a lot of positive feedback about my stories and about my writing. But the one thing that was, con- that there was a continuous, um, that was the snag was that I was didactic, and which I'm kind of that in real life too. So I get that. I just didn't even realize it was like creeping into my work. So I hired a, I took a year and a half off of submitting and I worked with uh, Deborah Brody who had been an editor and was like a writing coach at the time. And I worked with her for a year and a half, not on submitting, not on making the story that I was working on, which at the time was Finding Perfect better in in terms of like plot and, you know, chapter one through the end but in terms of me being a better writer, I knew I was didactic. I could see it in my work, but I couldn't figure out how to remove that intonation from my storyline or and from the voice that I was that, of my characters. So I worked for a year and a half on that. And um, I mean, ultimately, I got to a point that I was ready to submit again. And, um, once I revised Finding Perfect and at that point I ended up getting, um, getting my yes, fast forward another X amount of years, but it was, and one of my greatest compliments was when I, um, somebody had wanted to interview me about Finding Perfect and they said, you know, there's so much, there's a lot of message in your story, which there is like and we're all working on something. No one is just one thing. I mean, there's a, but she said it, it's not preachy or didactic. Like, how did you do that? And I was like, oh my God, thank you. (laughs) I'm like years of work. So um, that was something, I mean, I really took a hard look inward and really wanted to see what I could do better. What was in my control. I wanted to make sure I was putting out the very best work I could be putting out, and um, and then give that a go, and that ended up working.
0: What a wonderful story! Listen to me laughing. Why would you want to take in that pain? Well, of course, it is painful, but look at you not flinching, finding your uh, fearless fret as it were, and uh, <laughs> getting it, I... and uh, and finding the, the absolute reason. Because you can't learn anything if you don't go in there and you look at uh, if you don't if you don't look through your pain, right?
1: Right. I mean, it's, as you know, when I share this story, I don't share it with that this is easy, that I just like glided through and I didn't have a hard time. I mean, that's not true. Like there were people around me, like I say, in the acknowledgements in Dear Student, who, who, who believed in me, who championed me, who helped me get through those hard spots, who, when I did take a hard look at my, my writing, my craft, We're like, okay, yeah, so take that next level. I mean, I had support. So it is hard, but that's why the sense of community that we were talking about earlier, whether it's virtual, like during this time in particular in the pandemic, when we're all living these remote lives, you know, anxiety has crept in. The sense of community is more important than ever. And I really believe in that. And it has proven in my life to, as I said, help me get over the finish line. But you did ask me about Dear Student, so I should tell you about Dear Student.
0: Oh, sure. Yeah, so sooner or later, any uh, publicist who might be listening are wonder, are they gonna talk about the book? Let's, <laughs> let's uh, talk about the book. As promised, I will not summarize your book. What does the student audience need to know about Dear Student?
1: Um, Oh my God, the esteemed audience needs to do everything about Dear Student. They should definitely run out, pre-order it today and read it because I can't wait for them to meet Autumn and Pickle and Logan and Cooper. I love these characters so much, Rob. Dear Student is about Autumn, who has social anxiety and a um, giant uh, guinea pig who I named Spud because he does look like a giant baked potato. And she becomes the secret voice of the middle school advice column. And this is um, a story about her finding, not just finding, but owning her voice because she before her closest friend, Prisha has moved away And she is much more comfortable hanging out with the animals at her parents' vet place and her little sister, Pickle, than she is meeting a bunch of new sixth graders in middle school. I mean, that's hard and a lot for her. Her father, who has left to join the Peace Corps, tasks her with, she's got to find her one thing, her fearless Fred, as you referenced Fearless Fred is the part of us. uh, So her dad says that um, fear can't boss around. And she's got to do one thing at school. So she finds the secret advice column. And along the way in school, she meets two friends, Logan and Cooper, who could not be more different. And she ends up giving advice. And first, she's nervous. Then she's kind of pretty good at it. And she's feeling confident and letters come in for her to respond to. And she starts giving a lot of advice. And one piece of advice puts her smack dab in the middle of her friends, Logan and Cooper, who are on opposite sides of this issue. And she has to decide, what is she gonna do? And in the process of figuring out, does she stand by what she believes in? even if it ends up hurting a friend, something happens. And I can't do, I can't spoil it. But when um, this particular particular, um, thing in the story happens, a catalyst that kind of threatens her identity, um, she needs to make a lot of really big decisions. She needs to figure out who she is. And she needs to figure out how to own that. Right? Like it's, it, it's not enough to just find your voice, but to use your voice to share what's in your heart, to make a difference in the world, and to respect others that may not agree with you. Like she has to learn, like your, your friends are not your friends because you all agree about everything. Your friends are the... The people that respect you even when you don't agree about everything and that's something that she needs to learn and she one of my favorite um parts of the book is the last page which um i still cry like every time i read it i it's so emotional for me but um she finally finds her fearless spread. And I love Autumn so much. And I really feel like kids will relate to her. Kids who, you know, kid, we all have those moments, right? Kids, adults, whether you have social anxiety or not, where you walk into a room and you're like, am I saying the right thing? Am I doing the right thing? Am I dressed the right way? Does this sound weird? Will people think I'm weird? I mean, we all have those moments where we feel awkward and unsure. You don't have to have social anxiety to have that moment. And I'm hoping that the fact that we all have those moments allows us to relate and understand Autumn a little better and connect. And in this time with anxiety on the rise, particularly for kids, I want them to know like they've got this, they've totally got this and they're not alone. There's a lot of us who have anxiety and then You know, there's so many pets in this book, iguanas and snakes and guinea pigs. And um, I think kids are gonna love those too. And then there's activism, right? That cosmetic company moves into town and she's got to figure out what to do because there's testing on animals. And one really cool thing when I was researching this book, Rob, is that the Humane Act is a bill that's proposed in Congress right now. And it's about cosmetic testing on animals. So it's a really interesting. If you're an educator, it's also an interesting way to start having a conversation about laws and bills and how that, um, how those are passed and how those directly impact, can directly impact kids and kids' lives today. Yeah,
0: we can all get to you. Know, I'm gonna swallow that thought. I'm we can all get together work really hard get a bill put together put through and then one person can get yeah <laughs> oh, <really? laughs>
1: yes that but in we'll just focus on the humane act at the moment <laughs> and hope that they can that that can that that can happen but i um i really love i love pickle i love i love everybody in this book i love the characters and that's the weird thing like you write a book and the characters become like your friends, like they have such a place. And then you then you finish writing the book and you write the next one and I miss them. It's like, they've all moved. <laughs> all of them have collectively moved away from the Cape where the book is based.
0: You, I, you haven't written a sequel or just not, not one that's published at this point, right?
1: I have not. I have um, actually just yesterday, a student asked, I do, it's a question that comes up a lot. Um, it has actually come up with, students have asked uh, with each one of the books um, if there is gonna be a sequel. Uh, I don't know, I don't have the answer to that. That's a, That would be a question that with the publisher, I mean, I'd be amenable. Uh, I have ideas for all of them, but there's also a lot, so many, I mean, the problem or challenge, it's certainly not a problem. The challenge for me is there's so many things I wanna write, I have a new middle grade, that is like in my head and I am bursting to write it. But I, I, I don't have the brain space yet because right now I'm revising Hidden Truths. So I have to do, which I love. So I have to do that, launch Dear Student and then I can write this other middle grade. And then if, if uh, sequels or companion books are in the works or um, I would totally, love to do that because I love all the characters and I'd love to spend more time with them.
0: Well, even if that doesn't come to pass, I assume that you are still thinking about them. You still know, even if you don't write it down for the rest of us, you know what happens to
1: them, right? Yes. Yes. I, I feel like I, I do spend time thinking about all of the characters in the book and like how I think they're doing <laughs> and how I hope they're doing. So yes, I, I do feel like whether it's out there in the world or not, those are storylines that I, I have run through.
0: Well, I had heard you talk about when you're getting to know your characters, you will write letters to yourself from them. Is that right?
1: Yes. <laughs> um, so when I'm getting to know them, also when I'm stuck, or I just need to, It usually happens in like um, the, the middle. The middle of the book is always so hard for me. I always know the beginning and I know the end, the messy middle is like the gray area, the gray matter for me. Like when I was um, <laughs> writing Dear Student, so Victoria J. Co is a fabulous author. She wrote the Fenway and Hattie series and she's a good friend and I sent her my outline I'm like, I I need some help and I need to know if you think I'm going in the right direction. The first 20 chapters I had outlined, the last like 10 chapters I had outlined and in the middle of my outline said, something great happens here. (laughs) She's like, that's my favorite part. (laughs) So often when I have that as as my blocked out middle, I do this exercise where I have the main character write me a letter and tell me a secret or write me a letter and tell me something. It's, I like to access story um, a lot of different ways. And for me, from a creative standpoint, it's my creativity ticks on when I'm not staring, just staring at my computer. That's one way for me to access story, but it's not the only way. And sometimes I need to access the characters off of the screen in the same way. So I have them write me letters. And all the secrets in Smart Cookie, all of them came out of these letters. And and in all the books, I learned a lot about my characters by just having them talk to me. And I know, I know I'm the author. So I recognize that I'm writing to myself, but it feels different. It feels like you're a muse, you know, like you're the, the conduit for this voice. And if you just kind of let go, you can really tap into um, all. You, if you really, really listen, you can tap into all the things they want to tell you. And I find that to be just a really effective technique when I'm writing or revising. It gives me access to my characters in a way um, I wouldn't have otherwise. And sometimes, these letters, there are many aspects of every story. And I'm sure, I imagine I'm not the only one who feels this way, but like I'll write an outline generally. And I think I know where the story is going. And I get one, of, I write one of these letters, and my main character, Autumn's like, nope, that's not happening. That's not true. I wouldn't do that. You know, like so, or the, big scene, one of the big scenes in Dear Student involving Logan and Autumn, I didn't see that coming. That came from a letter. So um, it's an interesting technique, and I definitely encourage writers, kids to try it. It just, um, I don't know, I think when you can Access story, whether you, a lot of times I'll read my story out loud or I use these note cards and I highlight the storylines and I lay them on the floor and pray my dogs don't jump all over them to make sure that um, the, the through all of the different themes of the story, which are different colors, like visually I can see them on the floor, are being carried through the story. Like if I can access my story from all the different ways, whether I'm visually looking at it or hearing it or using these other techniques, it's really helpful to me to cut it, to um, unlock and really learn the characters.
0: Are so all those letters someplace where, you know, 200 years from now, when they when they uh, do the Elias Hortz uh, Memorial Library, where they put all those <laughs> letters in there and, and people will be able to peruse them?
1: Um, they're on my computer <laughs> <laughs> but I uh, yes that's very gracious and generous of you to think that's my future but um they're on my computer yes and I always keep I have all my stuff all the discarded pieces the different versions the, of all my stories are because they go through a lot I finding perfect was originally dual POV And now it's just written from the perspective of Molly Hidden Truths, which comes out in 2023 was originally written from the perspective of Eric and now it's Eric and Danny. Danny is Danielle. So it's a boy and girl, both dual POV. Um, So the stories. um, Yeah, I keep all of it tucked away.
0: And I know you're, you're very big on doing research for your stories as well. I'm assuming you're researching animals, you're researching social anxiety. Are you reading teen advice columns to get ideas for what kinds of questions teens ask?
1: Um, I, that's it. I did not read teen advice columns, um, but I did consult teens <laughs> uh, and I had some teens who are now grown up, but I did talk to kids um, to get their feedback on what mattered most to them. And also just being, spending so much time in schools, talking to kids, hearing their questions, hearing what's on the mind and their concerns. Um, I had a I had a lot to go on. Um, but research is incredibly important to me. I don't know if it's the lawyer in me or just as a writer, if I'm writing for anybody, but certainly for kids, respect authenticity is really at the root of everything I do. I have to honor my readers, right? You have to respect your readers. And the way to do that is to make sure that what you are sharing with them is, is true. Like every, I think all great fiction is rooted in something real. And that something has to be, it has to be authentic and it has to be vetted because if that isn't true, if what I'm sharing, if there's anything in my book that's not correct, then why would they believe all the other things that I'm sharing? Like, I feel out of respect, it is my job to make sure that what I am sharing is um, is accurate. So I have worked with um, uh, doctors on, all of my books because there are always mental health themes woven in. And actually Dr. Trainer, who's the therapist I worked with on Dear Student and on all of my books uh, preceding this, uh, and I are we're going to be in conversation at Politics and Prose on the Thursday after the book comes out. Um, and it's virtual and we're going to be talking a lot about mental health and books, which I'm yeah. glad I-
0: The launch, is there, will that still be available online someplace where esteemed audience can track that down?
1: Yeah, so that is, um, the book comes out on the 15th, which is Tuesday, it's the 17th, um, Thursday, and it's Politics and Prose. Um, I will put up a link on, I'll I'll put up a link, links on my website, and I will also be posting online. So if they follow me, they'll be able to um, register. But I'm excited about that. But I I worked, so I I also spoke to a Peace Corps volunteer because the dad um, goes to the Peace Corps. I spoke to somebody about iguanas and pregnant pythons because I didn't have Ontan knowledge about that. (laughs) Um, And I, uh, some, and very wonderfully, there were um, uh, some teachers who had helped me with some Spanish translations. So I mean, people are gracious, and they're really willing to to help and to lend a hand, which I'm most grateful for.
0: Well, plus there's that 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 promise of uh, maybe I'll be in the acknowledgments of a
1: book, right? Well, (laughs) everybody, yes, anybody who helps gets gets a. uh, thank you, because I am so grateful. I couldn't, you know, it takes it, it really does take a village. Like I can't, I can't do this alone and nor would I ever want to, you know, I think the input from others, the support of others is really where the magic happens.
0: You mentioned you, you, you work with a psychological consultant. I know you have a background. Uh, you studied psychology at one point, right?
1: I did that. I was at, I majored in psychology in, um, in college.
0: So when you're coming to a new story, since your stories do all have some sort of psychological angle as, as well as everything else, what's the process of of deciding what your next story is going to be? Do you start with, oh, I've got a character and I'm interested, or oh, I've got a psychological issue that I want to explore, and also at the same time I'm interested in Whoopie pies? What?
1: <laughs> <laughs> There's <laughs> always food in my mind.
0: That all come together. But-
1: And, oh, I I can't do, I can't have you throw out whoopie pies and not share. There are recipes in the back of the book of whoopie pies because they make them and there are allergy-free recipes because I'm allergic to a ton of stuff. So you got to make sure, you got to check those out because that was so much fun to make those. Um, But to answer your question, for me, it always starts with character. It is, I mean, it just always starts with a character comes to me. I don't, I can't say why like, I don't know why. I mean, I wish it was like a precise, I sat down and started thinking about this character. That's not really, for me, a character kind of comes to me and they have what they have. Um, Autumn had social anxiety. And so that's where it starts for me. I have to connect, every story that I write has to start with character because I have to connect to their heart. Like, that's how I have to write. I, I'm not a plot-driven writer. I'm a character-driven writer. I, I, I'll never have a chase scene <laughs> or be able to do that. My hat's off to anybody who can. It just doesn't, it doesn't. that process just doesn't work for me from an authentic standpoint. So it usually starts with a character, um, whether they have social anxiety or hoarding um, in give and take or um, Molly had OCD. And then I do the deep dive and research. And there, you know, all of my books have mental health things in them because mental health challenges, kids face those. And not talking about it is sending, in my opinion, a message that we shouldn't talk about it. And that's where the stigmas and stereotypes come in, right? If we can have the conversation, if kids can talk about anxiety, if we can talk about that we have social anxiety or OCD or hoarding or whatever, whatever the mental health challenge is, then we normalize it. Why is it any different than a kid who goes to get to the, hot, to the doctor when they have a fever or they go to get a cast on their arm when they break their arm? Why, when they have this invisible hurt, do they button up and don't say anything? I asked kids, I went when I was on tour for my books and went around the country and spoke to them. Like, why? And I said, like, why, why didn't you share with anybody? Why didn't you tell anybody? And these were the responses they gave me. Well, I, kids would think I was weird. I don't want them to stop being friends with me. I don't want people to hate me. I'm embarrassed. That is not okay with me. I will write into, <laughs> I cannot write anymore. And so that goes away. We, we can't have kids feeling shame about one part of who they are. That's, that's crazy. Nobody's defined by their, they're not, their mental health challenge. Nobody's like the flu for life. Like why, why would they, why, why is that okay to go see a doctor about and talk about, but, but anxiety isn't. They shouldn't feel embarrassed. So books are a way in. That's the only, that's a tool I have in my toolbox is that if I can write about kids who have these experiences, then kids can talk about it and teachers can talk about it and families can talk about it. And books show those kids that they're not alone. Books give them the language. Like I can't tell you how many letters I've gotten Rob from kids telling me that they didn't know that anybody else did this stuff, that they didn't know what to call it, that they're now getting help. Parents who have written, teachers who have written, kids who've written. Books, they make a difference. They They can connect kids and give them the voice they need and the courage they need to take that next step. And so I research a lot. I take these characters as they come and um, I kind of fall in love with them. And then I put them in the world and I hope that kids connect with them and I hope they start conversations.
0: And then when you're able to go out and do school visits, Zoom visits, um, you've got something aside from just the story, although the story is is plenty to be talking about, but you've got something to present and, and to share with the world. Uh, that goes beyond that and that can, I assume, relate to a number of fields.
1: It's, it's really interesting, Rob, and it's such an immense privilege to go into a school pre-pandemic and do a 50-minute presentation and the amount of honesty and vulnerability that the kids are, the stories that they are willing to share with me. I was a stranger 50 minutes ago, but now they're willing to share their entire heart with me, that they have OCD, that they don't have friends, that they're scared, that they have all, all the, they're willing to share their most vulnerable self with me. And it it's, I think, I mean, it's because the, Books I write, the characters they connect with, and those characters are, they feel that they can trust, they know that they can trust me, and they know that they can share with me, and they, it's a safe place to land, and that is a huge privilege, a huge privilege to be in that position, to get hugs from these kids, kids who are crying, and just to say to them, you know, I believe in you, you are incredibly brave, and you've got this. You're not alone. Like you will get to the other side. And I think the more kids can hear that, the better it is. I hope kids find their fearless friend. <laughs> I imagine that also
0: not in a cold calculated kind of way, but in a, in a, in a genuine way, because you would never share anybody's uh, information that was shared with you that's gonna remain confidence. But uh, talking to a number of teens, I would imagine that gives you a direct window into what is bothering teens. Yeah. What is you're doing market research? Although it's not that you're being a person, you're being you know there right. and connected to them. But that that is, I assume, sooner or later you're going to pick up something. Oh, I've heard this enough times now that that should be that should be a subject of a book for them and for all the people out there who are suffering those types of problems that I'm not meeting in person,
1: right? Yeah, I mean, I think you know when kids say what inspires your your characters, your books, I'm like, you guys do. Like you guys inspire me, you inspire me all the time. And you know, there's not one character that is one kid I've met in a school or one person in my life or me, but it's sprinklings of all of those experiences. You know, I, (laughs) kids often ask like, is Molly you, is Autumn you? And I'm like, I can tell you that I have anxiety and it's something I have struggled with and it's something I work through, but I am not my characters. I said, and neither are the people in my life, although there are plenty of people in my life who have mental health challenges. I said, if I put all the people in my life, in my books, people would stop hanging out with me. (laughs) I'm like, the animals will love me anyway, but I can't just plunk my family and friends into books and have, you know, and then go out to dinner with them. So I...
0: they are good for like, what, one book at best, maybe two. And then you need some new material.
1: <laughs> but I said, you know, you, if, when you write from your heart, you, your life experiences are imprinted there, right? So those come out. Those come out in different ways in your writing and in your characters. So I think there's a touch of me and all the experiences I have. But yes, when people, kids share with me, It's confidential, like I don't put that out there, Um, but I do view it as an incredible privilege that they trust me and I value that immensely. So
0: um, I'm watching our our time and I've got other questions uh, about your process, but I did want to ask specifically uh, about Dear Student uh that uh you said that uh or there's there's a quote uh from autumn um somewhere in the book no, no spoilers but she says that i've learned the most fearless and frightening thing i can do is be myself yes. why is that so
1: oh oh you're gonna make me cry oh,
0: that's, that's uh, i'm quote. very
1: mushy <laughs> bob i i should have started with that um because being yourself is the hardest thing you can do i, I mean i i being true to yourself she finds herself in a posi- she finds herself in a position where she has two friends on opposite sides of an issue and she is waffling does she do nothing does she do something no matter what she does somebody one somebody she cares about is going to be mad or hurt and she has to look inside who she is and realize and be true to herself with her friends with her dad and i think that is the most the bravest and scariest thing you can be right like being true to who you are i've always been a person who said i'm good if you love me or don't like me like i'm good either way i just hope that you always respect me like in, Knowing that not everybody is, is, go, is for Autumn, not everyone's gonna be her friend, not everyone is going to agree with her, but hopefully she learns that the most important thing is that at the end of the day, she puts her head on the pillow and she's been true to herself. And I feel like that's something that I have always lived by. Like at the end of the day, you put your head on the pillow. If you've been true to who you are, if you've been kind, you've been respectful, your heart's filled with love, then you're good to go. And so I think that is brave, especially in a world, in the, the world that kids live in today. It's hard. There, You know, social media is everywhere. Social media, and it's not, it's the shiny penny version of people's lives, right? You know, TikTok and Snapchat and you know, vacation pictures and smiles and the slivers of life that are people's shiny penny version. But kids are bombarded with that. It's, it's hard for them to know that other kids have anxiety, that other kids are having a bad day and other kids may not be invited to things. It's a lot. And I think it's, it's really brave to be who you are. And that's why in the book talked about, um, Like she says, that Prashez says that she's good weird. I mean, I feel like we're all weird. We're all a little weird, good weird. I love that. Um, And just being true to to all parts of you, the parts that you're working on and the parts that you're proud of.
0: Uh, And I know that you work with a couple of educators to put together curriculum guides for all of your books. When does that process start and how does that help you make the book a part of the classroom?
1: Um, oh, great question. So I've worked with Anna Kantos and um, Raina Friedman who are rock star educators uh, real and wonderful humans. And I usually, it's I'm trying to go back and think about when we did Dear Student. Um, it's usually during, after the revision process, after the book is probably in copy edits, I would say, is when I reach out and we start kind of thinking about um, the how I want to connect with students um, and how I think the book will help educators and students um, in the classroom. And it usually begins with kind of like what do what's important for me to share like what do I want to share because my the curriculum guide really rob is a thank you from me to educators if they're going to use my book I just want to say thanks I want to give them the here here's discussion questions quotes activities i mean their job is hard enough they have so many demands on them their day is jam-packed if I can just say here's my book and here's a you know 20 things you can do with it You can use one of them, none of them, all of them, but these are for you if you choose to share my book in your classroom, it's my way of saying thank you. And I begin with like, what are the things I, that I hope that kids, what's the takeaway, like the things that are resonate with me in the book and that I want to share with them. And then I work within, uh, you know, the common core guidelines and I work with the, Anna and Raina about how, what do educators need and what is helpful to them based on the things I would like to get across like bravery or fearlessness or finding your voice or activism, whatever that may be. Those are some of the topics in the Dear Student curriculum, how best to share that with educators. And um, Raina is, does, she was the president of MassQ, and so she does a ton of digital and online work, and it's been really helpful kind of for me to learn those tools and to be able to give those tools to educators who want to connect um, either within their class or with other classrooms. And so those are also incorporated in the curriculum guide. And so it's been wonderful. I mean, I've learned a lot from both of them, and I feel like the curriculum guides are just a great resource. And there are, um, I should say, Rob, there are a lot of resources for educators on my website. Uh, In addition to the curriculum guides and activities that go with all the books, there are um, uh, SEL, social emotional learning resources, podcasts that I've um, been on over the years, this one included will be on there, and um, articles I've written. social emotional learning, not only resources, but book lists for uh, picture books and middle grade. And so, you know, again, trying to do what I can to help educators knowing that they have a lot on their plate. And um, if I can share some resources and activities, I like to offer those.
0: And. Your, your, your shiny penny is looking wonderful. I've noticed uh, that, you're, that you're in lots of different places online for social media. Uh, so one, all the educators listening to us who wanna get access to the curriculum, they should go to what website?
1: Um, ellieswartz.com. And there is a For Educators tab, making it hopefully super easy. Uh, they can reach me. Um, there's a contact page on my website or Ellie at ellieswartz.com. And um, I love hearing from educators. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Inst- I'm on Twitter at LA Swartz. I'm on Instagram at LA Swartz books and I have my website Swartz.com. I am pretty accessible. If you can't reach me via email, shoot me a DM. Um, I always get back to people who readers and educators. so don't hesitate. Um, I love connecting. And, and I should say, Also, there is a pre-order campaign for Dear Student, Rob. So I just wanted to give a shout out. If you order from um, a Cousins Books, Wellesley Books, or The Brain Lair, um, I am sending, I I will be signing personalized copies if you pre-order from them. And if you pre-order from anywhere and send it to Dear Student Preorder at gmail.com, you can be entered to win one of three grand prizes. One is a free virtual Q and A with me. One is um, Dear Student Letters, or Dear Letters in the um, in the Spirit of Dear Student Letters from me to your students. And the last one is a Brave Like Me poster for your classroom. So those are the, the grand prizes that you can win if you send your receipt of a pre-order to um, Dear student, order at gmail.com.
0: So if you've been listening to us, you've been thinking, why doesn't he ask her this? Well, good news, you get involved, you'll have the opportunity to ask whatever question you like. You know? <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> that, that's right. That's right. Plus, I'll be doing the Wellesley Books um, on Super Bowl Sunday. I'll be a Politics and Prose on the 17th. I'll also be doing upcoming, um, I'll be at Books... Uh, there's a number of um, book events I'll be doing, and they'll be listed on my website. And Good. I can't wait! I'm so excited.
0: Well, that's a, a lot of a lot of commitments. Uh, plus the, the social media presence alone is a little bit uh, intimidating to me. Uh, so looking at all of that, how is your day structured to allow for time for all that that marketing here? I'm sucking up uh, a portion of your morning that's not going into writing. I assume that you'll have other events, if not this week, certainly in the near future. How, what does your author day-to-day schedule look like? How much time are you allotting for social media marketing? And what are the best strategies to, keep, to make sure you're on top of all that stuff while still getting your, your words in?
1: Um, so it's it's definitely a lot. It's The juggle is real. <laughs> um, but I, I kind of love all of it. I really do. And my days are different. Every day is pretty different. The only consistent aspect is I'm walking my dogs. <laughs> usually I get up early. Um, I walk my dogs early and then depending on what stage I'm in right now, I'm revising hidden truths. So I've been working pretty. Um, I do when I'm in that stage of a book, I'll I'll sit for hours, like hours and just, um, I like to, take the book in one big gulp when I'm revising it at this point. So I could sit for like five hours or so and just write. Um, if I'm drafting a new book, it's got to be in smaller chunks because my brain feels like it's on overload. So, um, depending on whether I'm drafting or revising sort of dictates, um, my writing style for that day. And, um, and then right now I'm doing a lot of interviews and, um, blog posts, and so I take a lot of time for writing for those as well. It's really, um, every day is a little bit different. I'm also an author in residence at a school in New Jersey, so next week I'll be doing 12 presentations on revision, so I'm with that school all year, and I do workshops um, on finding your voice and finding ideas and revision. And I'll do a meet and greet and then it'll culminate in us hopefully in person in May. It's the Washington School in New Jersey. And I do a, I do a lot of virtual visits um, and in-person visits when when the world was open and hopefully again soon. So it's, um, it's a balance. I mean, the social media piece, I try to do that when I wake up with coffee that's kind of my, I answer my emails and I do that early on. And then I kind of put that away and do chunk out the rest of the day with, between writing and, um, and then promotional stuff, like in at the stage now for dear student and getting ready to gear up for that and getting the revision done for hidden truths. Cause that's due. <laughs> Deadlines really help chunk out your day because those are not moving, and um, I wouldn't. I would never miss a deadline. So uh, it's yeah, it's a little bit of everything, but I do. Um, my schedule is very specific when I start my day. I'm doing something from this time to this time, and then I'm doing, for instance, this interview, and it's chunked out by like an hour. It's not. Um, it's not free form. I'll fit it in. It's very scheduled. And I like it like that. So it works for me.
0: So you'll have a marked out time that, hey, from this period to this period I'm writing, shut everything else off, this is happening?
1: Yes. And so, I mean, I don't, um, people say, oh, I texted you. And I'm like, I don't have noise on any, uh, other than my, my phone is on, it will ring. I don't have notifications that, ping and zing and buzz, I, I would never get anything done. It's too distracting for me. I can't. I, so I'll just, when I take a break, uh, it's my little reward. I'll look at my phone, but not until I take a break.
0: Then you find out your tweet went viral and for the last hour. So <laughs> then,
1: oh, that would be fun. <laughs> you're like, you're like um, a good luck charm.
0: So revision—that's that goes on for for hours at a time. I know you sometimes you you skip meals because you want to get all those chapters revised. Yes, um, what happens. does that look like?
1: Drafting is definitely more chunked out. So I'll um, I, the way it works for me is I'll have a very—I won't start a story when I have an idea. I'll go for walks. I'll start thinking about the characters. I'll start playing around with the like this other book that I'm excited to write. I have ideas and they're like whooshing in my head, but I can't write anything yet. They're too esoteric. They're not concrete enough. I don't know the characters well enough. And if I were to sit down and start writing, it would be forced. It's got to be like, um, like I like to cook. They need to marinate. Like the ideas just need to marinate a bit before they're ready. And then when I sit down, I map out a very rough outline. I am not a big outliner. Um, I just... I just have ideas that I put down, like something great happens here. And then I start to write. And as I write, I fill in my outline. And so when, what I do, if I'm writing a draft is, I'll write, and then if I'm at, either my brain is just fried or I have to stop writing for some reason, I'll write myself notes for the next day so that when I'm starting, I'm not starting from like zero. I'm starting from like these were the breadcrumbs that were that I left yesterday for you. So for me, so that's what I do. And then when I start writing something new, I will only allow myself to go back to the chapter before the last chapter I wrote um, and read that and then write from there. Because if I went back to the beginning, I would just revol- I would just spend all the time. I know my first draft, I always it stinks. It's like I tell the kids, it's like Swiss cheese, it stinks and it's got lots of holes. If I went back every time I sat down to write my first draft, I went back to the beginning, I'd get nothing done because I know it stinks. I just have to get to the end and then I can go back and make it great, hopefully.
0: <laughs> I should polish the tremendous subplot, get it perfect, that eventually you're going to have to cut anyway. Ah.
1: Right. I mean, you got to kill your darlings. You got to ditch a ton. I mean, a lot of the first 30 pages I often have to ditch. Because my book starts on page 31. I just needed to write the first 30 pages to kind of get there. You know, like they, they were important to write. They're just not important to keep. Which is something I've definitely had to learn.
0: Well, you mentioned cooking again. I've missed per- two perfectly good opportunities to plug Books in the Kitchen with Victoria Jayco. Yes. I definitely want to make sure I do that. What is Books in the Kitchen and where can esteemed audience go to, to enjoy it?
1: Books in the Kitchen is on YouTube um, and Victoria and I have a blast and we're looking to get back to it. (laughs) We've been out in our own separate kitchens for quite a while during the pandemic, but it's something that came up just, we both like to cook and she loves to bake and I'm more of the sous chef as a baker. I love to cook. Baking is a work in progress for me. And we love to dance, which inevitably gets in there and tell very bad jokes, which also happen to get in there. And then we talk about aspects of our book um, while we're baking. And it's a blast. We have a lot of fun. We bake a lot of good stuff. And um, it's, you know, again, going back to what we started with, which is that sense of community, having people in your world, writers that you connect with um, about books, about cooking. um, It's a lot of fun. And educators, a lot of educators have used that model. We actually, on both of our websites, there's something educators, there's a books in the kitchen platform that they can use with their own students, because not everybody wants to book talk. Not everybody, not every kid wants to write, a, you know, a the equivalent of a book report. And so sometimes, kids can just do their own version of books in the kitchen. They can, you know, for Dear Student, they could make whoopie pies and talk about the book. And that might be a better access point for them for for reading, interest and learning and sharing for them than sitting down and like writing up a book talk. So that's also on both of our sites. So again, it's a a way of saying thanks to educators is the platform that we've provided. Um, it's a literally step-by-step with all, all the things that they would need to put it into use. And then uh, Victoria and I just have a blast doing it, the two of us, and hopefully um, we'll be back at it soon, making whoopie pies.
0: Well, we're talking about community other than uh, hosting a YouTube show with, with, with authors that you admire, uh, which is which is a smart move. I, I have to admit. Uh, other than that, uh, what are some good ways, both pre-pandemic and now post-pandemic, to build a community of writers? If you're a writer out there who's feeling alone and you don't have that support network, how how might you suggest somebody go out and acquire one?
1: SCBWI is I is always my go-to. It's an incredible, you know, it's an organization where writers. Go for resources for community. You can um, there are you can find um, critique groups through SCBWI. Go to conferences. That's where I started. I mean, that's how I started my um, when I way back when um, I joined, and then I had a critique group that was in my area, which was amazing. Wonderful, wonderful people in it. Um, then, I mean, the other, I also took, um, again, this is the analytical lawyer side. I took a class by, with Jackie Davies, who was teaching it on how to write a kid's book. There are, it was, um, like a local, like a local community class. Um, that's a wonderful way also to get to know the people in your area. In our area, like Grub Street or the Writer's Loft are places where writers can go, that um, there's a sense of community and a sense of collaboration and support. So I would say in your community, I'd say SCBWI then find your regional chapter, get into a critique group and then find what writing collaboratives there are in your area um, and take advantage of those. Like really lean into them and support each other. And, You know, I went to uh, VCFA retreats, Um, there's highlights, there's lots of different organizations out there where you can really connect with other people who are sharing your journey.
0: Other sorts, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost?
1: I have never seen a flying saucer, although I don't rule out that there's life elsewhere. Um, I don't know what that looks like, but I don't believe that we're it. I think there's something bigger as far as ghost. I've not seen like the Casper version, but I will say, um, I definitely believe in some sort of afterlife in, um, it actually, it's funny. I saw your email and I was actually revising hidden truths and there is a part in it that stem, as we were talking about from an experience I had. And so my mom died, um, young many years ago, she, 26 years in April. And after she died, and it was a couple of years afterwards because my son, my youngest was six months when she died and he was probably like two. And uh, we were, he was like, you know, in the bath or something and my, and he came out and my dog was there. And I swear to God, like my mom was there like i just felt her i felt like i i felt like she was there in a way that i hadn't felt before and i haven't felt since and it was just this moment in time where i i don't know how to explain it i just felt her presence and told her i loved her and i missed her and then my dog shook And my kid cried and that was it. That was the end of that moment. But um, I definitely believe that there's, and you know, I'm an optimist. I mean, maybe that's just my need to believe, but either way, I do believe that there's, that we carry on in some way. I don't know what that looks like, but I have vision that like my mom and my grandmother who died when, and my other grandmother are up in heaven like having some white wine and you know and my father-in-law and they're just having a party up there toasting to their like beautiful family down here
0: <laughs> so they'll be waiting for you to show up with some whoopie pies and yeah that's right <laughs> you'll have a wonderful time yep Oh, is! I'm, I'm tickled by the notion of uh, an atheist uh, who, just before they, you know, the, the consciousness is obliterated, they sort of like, "Yep, there's definitely no afterlife." Nailed it!
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm a believer, and I don't. Again, I, I'm not saying I have the answers or know what it looks like. I just, and not for religious reasons, just maybe it's, as I said, just my kind of. Uh, need to believe that things carry on.
0: Well, I'm watching our time and it's it's, it's flown by. It, it always it's
1: like, This has been so much fun. I feel like we could continue to like just totally hang out.
0: Well, you've got at least another one more book coming out next year. And I assume there's going to be far more after that. So you'll come back and we'll do this again. And by one day there will be in-person events and, and hopefully <laughs> we'll meet at one. Uh, so thank you for, for being a, a tremendous guest. My last question for today uh, is if you could go back toward the 15-year the, the start of your career or wherever in there it would have been useful to yourself to, to go back and give yourself some, some advice that would have made easier your path and might make easier the paths of everybody watching or listening to us, what would you go back and tell yourself?
1: I think I would tell myself myself. Um, I would remind myself to have fun to be, and to believe in myself and to trust my gut. Because truthfully, like, and to just keep working at it, like keep doing what makes you happy. I think that's what I would say. Just keep doing what makes you happy and believe in yourself. Because I, in my heart, doing the thing that makes you happy, I, 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 I believe it does not the thing that you're good at, but the thing that brings you joy, is really like where your happy place will be. And so, I think I would hope to remind myself to just do um, do that, do what makes you happy, and believe in yourself.
0: I think that's the perfect note to end on. Remind esteemed audience where they can find you
1: online. Okay, so um, I am at ellieswartz.com. Uh, and I am on Twitter at Swartz, on Instagram at LASwartz Books, And thank you, Rob. This was so fun. I had a blast. And thank you to the listeners. And I hope you love Autumn as much as I do. <laughs>
0: As always, esteemed audience, for the back catalog of the show, for interviews with thousands of literary agents, editors, authors, all the world's best people, go to (laughs) literaryninja.com. Download your free copy of my book, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. It will change your life. Have cash money ready when you're ready for the sequels. I'll be there. Uh, And as always, God will I'm alive. I'll see you next week.